and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Justin Ziemba from PenChop talking about patient safety. Hi, everyone. Uh, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Ankur Shah. One of the Penn residents. It's my pleasure to introduce my mentor and Penn Urology faculty member, Justin Ziemba. Dr. Ziemba is our assistant program director, and he's the director of safety, quality, and value in the division of urology here at Penn. Thanks for being here today, Justin. All right, thanks for uh, the introduction um, and calling me your mentor, Encore. That's right. Um, thanks. Uh, I wanted to thank UCSF for. Um, allowing us to be participants here uh, from Penn as well as me personally. Um, I think this is a great educational opportunity um, uh, for all our trainees, uh, med students and residents uh, alike. Um, and I know um, having talked to a few other uh, specialties from around the country, um, they're very jealous of how quickly um, this was able to get organized uh, this collaborative, and, and they're uh, frankly jealous of the ability of uh, the urologists to uh, use technology to educate um, our group of trainees across the country. So thank you again to UCSF for putting that together. Um, <clears throat> today we'll be talking about the science and practice of patient safety. Um, I did list um, on the website the AUA core curriculum um, as sort of some pre or, or post reading. Um, you know, I'm not going to really cover much of that today. I think most of that is pretty self-explanatory and content that is easily absorbed by reading. Most of it is about uh, perioperative safety and the surgical uh, safety checklist, which most of you should be familiar um, and is widely already adopted um, across uh, most institutions in the United States. So today, what I thought I'd focus on is instead um, some conceptual models of patient safety, where we're moving to. Um, and then discuss a little bit about how you might apply some of those concepts locally in your medical school during your clerkships or your residency uh, per, uh, training or programs. And then also uh, a little bit how you could make uh, safety or quality part of your future career plans uh, since we're seeing a, a lot more people interested in that. So I have no financial disclosures. Um, so really what I wanted to do to start off with is highlight the two concepts that I think are important to take away today from today's lecture. Um, we'll revisit these uh, several times throughout the lecture, uh, but I thought it's important to start off right from the top so you know where, what I think is important and what you should be taking away. So there really are two um, sort of encompassing uh, safety frameworks or conceptual models uh, in healthcare. Um, there's the Safety One movement, which most institutions and most of us are uh, currently practicing in. Um, that's really this idea that there's a single cause and effect for every error or adverse event or accident in, in the healthcare system. Uh, it's really a linear type of thinking um, that really uh, believes that there, we look at things retrospectively and it's termed work as imagined, where we're essentially taking um, an accident after it occurs and then comparing it to an idealized version of what um, should have happened. We know that doesn't really exist in real life. Um, so over the last 10, 20 years, there's been this growing idea about the safety two movement, which is really looking at things are not as simple as a linear idea, 
but really these complex work environments and systems that we all uh, participate in and how care is delivered that both the source of success, meaning no patient harm, and when patient harm does happen, is really due to performance variability of, of the humans who work in those environments as well as the systems that we've created. And that's really comparing that to work as done. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I think it's really important um, that we, you know, I, hi I highlight those two right off the top so that you can know and, and think about that as we move forward. And I'm going to dive into those a little bit more. Uh, before we get started, I think it's really important that we have a definition of harm. This isn't my definition. This is from the IHI or Institute of Healthcare Improvement. It's really unintended injury resulting from the care that we deliver to our patients, and it requires additional monitoring, treatment, or hospitalization. And unfortunately, sometimes that does result in death. So that just kind of sets the framework for us. Um, when we're thinking about errors, um, the definitions, I think, are a little bit important, but, but not super important. Um, however, I wanted to touch on it so we can all have the same sort of lingo, and particularly as you go out uh, either into practice or in your residency training programs, when you hear these words come up, you know what people are talking about. Obviously, not all mistakes or not all errors lead to adverse events. There's this huge category called near misses, which um, where, where an error was caught before it reached uh, the, the, the patient. Um, and we'll talk about why that's important actually on the next slide. Then uh, within adverse events, which is where it actually touches the patient, you have preventable and non-preventable adverse events. Um, I think there's still a fair amount of debate about if things are actually ever preventable completely. Um, so those categories are not um, super important. And then there's negligence, which we're not going to talk about at all. And that's where care sort of drops below the standard um, of care. Um, there are two other things about errors. Um, people conceptualize errors as an act um, of commission, meaning doing something um, that's wrong. I, I don't want to use the word wrong, but doing something that is inaccurate or an act of omission means forgetting to do something right when the situation called for it. There's also the um, idea of, you, you know, you correct it or you created a correct plan, but you implemented it in the wrong way and that led to an error. Um, so there's many categories of errors and those are classified. Again, those are just kind of the broad ideas and uh, the concepts that I think um, are important for us to have a, a groundwork today. So this pyramid um, really represents um, uh, why it's important to look at those near misses and report them. So this is actually drawn from occupational safety, which is um, what you think of on a manufacturing floor or in an assembly line. Um, these are uh, injuries to workers, not patients. There is not really a comparable uh, study that's been done in, in, in patient safety, but the idea I think is really what's important or their concept. So what they discovered across an occupational uh, safety is that you need about 600 near misses um, or reported near misses to capture um, or prevent approximately 30 events with minimal harm, in our case, minimal harm to the patient. Again, you need about 600 of those to capture or um, prevent 10 uh, injuries with, with uh, serious harm. Um, and then at the top of the pyramid is death. So you need about 600 near miss reports in order to identify a problem or capture a, a system to prevent one death. So that's why most of our events actually fall in the, in the near miss category because we're actually quite good at preventing them from, from hitting our patients. Uh, but it's also important to look at those because they really 
provide evidence for what's going on in the work environment, and that's how you get to preventing um, this relatively minimal amount of harm. So we'll come back to sort of this idea from the pyramid and why that's important, but um, I think this figure really encapsulates that. So the two theories we're going to talk about in, in how errors sort of emerge and how we think about investigating them and applying corrective actions, they're sort of the resultant theory, and that's really that safety one framework that I mentioned at the very beginning, that very linear thinking. There's also the emergent uh, framework, which is really the safety two, and that's um, outcomes emerge from the difference in performance variability. And so now we're going to go into each one of those so you can get an idea about um, what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are and um, how we start to think about putting them together and how we apply them in today's world. So first we'll talk about the resultant theory. This is really the historical um, um, idea. This is where many healthcare institutions are currently operating in terms of patient safety. Um, these, um, and this is the safety one framework. So when we think about this, um, errors really happen in a linear sequence of events. Um, there are several assumptions that this assumes. One is that the systems that we've created to take care of our patients are independent. So each little piece operates on its own. We know that that probably isn't true, but this model assumes that. Um, we know that systems and workplaces, uh, or this assumes that systems and workplaces are extremely well designed, that the people who design them um, thought of every possible contingency. Um, and when they didn't think of a contingency, the frontline operator, which is all of us in healthcare that are actually touching patients, are able to um, adapt and respond to things that were not uh, present in the original plan. It also assumes that there's, our, there's policies and procedures for everything and that every outcome is knowable. Um, and so those assumptions, um, as you can imagine, don't really apply to today's complex healthcare environment. But unfortunately, this is how we conceptualize safety in, in many institutions across the United States, and including um, at Penn. So some of the frameworks or some of the underlying factors in this model that really um, gets you to think about how you investigate an accident um, is they really, this model really assumes that um, systems are operating in a bimodal uh, way. So that means they're either functioning, um, in this case, you know, your work environment, everything's going great, or they're non-functioning. Um, there's really nothing in between. There's no variability. It's either up or down. I've mentioned this a few times already. Uh, the way that this model assumes is that it's a very cause and effect that for every um, you know, outcome, there was one singular cause um, that's been stretched a little bit that there may be multiple causes, but it happens in a very predictable, linear and knowable sequence of events. Um, we know that that probably isn't true and we'll touch on, uh, on that in the safety two uh, coming up next. It also assumes that all of this uh, can be deconstructed, meaning when you have an error or the work unit or the environment you're looking at, all of those pieces can be deconstructed and you can examine them sort of independently from the whole, kind of like fixing an engine in your car. You could take one piston out and know it's a piston and put it back in the engine and the engine wouldn't know that there's anything different. Um, again, not a great assumption in uh, current complex healthcare, but but this is the assumptions that these models and investigation tools uh, rely on. Again, um, this is really that um, when something goes wrong, you can 
pull each piece apart and look at it independently, the really one plus one equals two model, that the sum of the parts really create um, that whole system. Um, it's really simplistic and that each piece is independent rather than interdependent, meaning that they're coupled and they rely on each other to succeed. In this model, everything is sort of independent. So when we're thinking about um, those assumptions and when we have an error, an adverse event, um, all those play into how we investigate it. So this is really the sequence that um, goes uh, into investigating an adverse event um, when we're thinking about this model. And, and this is really the root cause analysis idea, which I'm sure many of you have, have heard of, um, possibly participated in at your institutions. Um, this is a tool that's used widely across healthcare. And again, it's just a tool, but it relies on many of these assumptions, is that it's a trial and error system. So we essentially wait for something bad to happen. Then once it does, we investigate it. Um, and we sort of look around and this is where we do those root causes. Um, we try to find the original cause that led to the effect, which in this case is the accident or, or this person slipping and falling. And then we try to attribute it, where exactly did that happen um, and who was responsible, um, whether that was a piece of uh, equipment or technology that didn't work or whether it was a policy or procedure. Sort of the worst case scenario and what has really come out of this um, concept in this investigation uh, framework is that we do, we often attribute accidents or adverse events to people, um, sometimes individuals, and that really is almost never the cause um, and also creates this sort of negative connotation to safety and investigation. Um, but once you sort of do that attribution and you under, understand some of the root causes, then what you do is you try to go back, you correct them, um, and, then you, and then you wait and see if it works and hope it doesn't again. The problem with this is, again, we talked about it, it can attribute things to individuals or human behavior um, or one person's behavior, and it really sort of thinks that if I make a correction in one specific work area or one specific policy, that it's somehow going to prevent um, harm from happening somewhere else in the hospital. So what, what this is really termed is where we're, we're examining work as imagined rather than what's really taken place and what happens in the real work environment or better thought of as, you know, safety as imagined. Um, and this is kind of thought of uh, similarly the Swiss cheese model or the, or the model by James Reason um, where errors sort of pass through and then you investigate them retrospectively. So up next, we're going to get to the emergent model, which I think is really sort of the next um, forefront of safety um, and we're, where a lot of institutions are hoping to get to. This is where we're sort of transitioning here at Penn. This is the idea that outcomes emerge from performance variability or, or how people perform on a day-to-day -day basis within their very complex work environments um, rather than it happening in a sort of linear predictable sequence of events. Um, so in this model, we really think that you know, the system can't really be decomposed into sort of individual pieces. It's really not that one plus one equals two idea um, because there's so many interconnected pieces. Um, you all know how it works on in the operating room or on the inpatient floors or even the outpatient floors. There's many people uh, that are involved in the care of each individual patient um, and things are constantly in flux and being um, uh, modified and adapted and you have to be flexible and, and adaptable um, and so that's really where this model is, is makes a lot more sense. Um, 
in this case, um, our systems or, or how we perform is not really um, on or off or functioning or non-functioning. It's really variable depending on what we're doing, what is required of us, um, how many tasks we have to do. Um, so it's really that performance variability. Um, in this case, errors um, can be attributed to individuals or, um, or, or pieces of equipment, but most of the time it's due to uh, uh, changes in the performance um, of the people and the system that supports them at that single moment in time um, that led to an error, not necessarily anything that was per se wrong with uh, what was happening. Um, and so things are very highly interdependent rather than independent in our previous model. So this just highlights here, um, you know, really thinking about that um, things are not on or off functioning or, or malfunctioning. It's really variable on a day-to-day -day basis, even on an hour or a minute basis. Um, and you know that your performance changes throughout the day, your team members' performance changes throughout the day, the tasks that you're asked to do and the pressure that you're put on to do those tasks, they all change minute to minute. Um, and it's really that variability that is actually our strength in, in protecting patients and, and providing safe care almost exclusively all the time, um, rather than the source of, uh, of deficit. Now, errors do occur, and we all know that, but, but most of the time, this model sort of takes that performance variability, which was previously seen as a weakness, um, actually as a strength. So this brings into the concept of socio-technical systems. Um, you can see this is a much better representation of a uh, system that we work in or the healthcare environment we work in rather than that sort of linear straight line. Um, Socio-technical systems is just a fancy way of saying, you know, the humans that work um, in an organization, how the culture of that organization supports them, um, all the policies and procedures they have in place. Um, as well as um, the technology that they've built and the machines that they interact with, um, how that, um, that whole system functions. And again, here we have, you know, each little piece really isn't compatible and sort of adding to the whole. You really need to have the concept of the whole in and of itself. You can't really break it down. There's no natural element. Things are interdependent, highly coupled, highly linked together where changes in one will affect changes uh, elsewhere throughout the system. And again, I think that makes a lot of intuitive sense for how we see, um, how we deliver care, um, you know, in the modern healthcare uh, environment. So this, when we think about accidents that happen and, and when accidents actually don't happen, uh, what we do is we want to examine work as done. So in the previous, which was really based on the root cause analysis and looking back for a cause that led to an effect, in this case, we're looking at the system as a whole and saying, why are, we, why are we performing the way that we do? And specifically, actually thinking about looking at areas that are performing really well um, in terms of, you know, why, um, you know, why is it that we're able to perform so well all the time? And why are some units or some groups of people, some teams, some individuals, why are they performing better than other units throughout the hospital and actually go to where safe care is being delivered and learning from that. So this is really that concept of work as done, um, which makes, again, a lot more intuitive sense. We wanna see what people are doing. How are they adapting? How are they changing their rules? Um, how are they modifying their policies to make things safer um, and better for our patients? This really brings in this other concept of resilience, which 
I think many of us during this pandemic have heard in, um, over and over again in terms of psychological resilience. Uh, the same concept exists for systems and particularly in the safety two uh, mindset. Um, and uh, the individuals who have been really um, uh, the sort of founding uh, members of the safety two movement really define this resilience in terms of safety um, as the ability to succeed um, under expected and unexpected conditions alike um, so that the number of intended and acceptable outcomes is as high as possible or put as put in another way everyday performance variability uh, provides the adaptations that are needed to produce acceptable or intended outcomes when conditions are favorable but more importantly when they're unfavorable um, and I and I think that is really a great concept for what we need to think about in safety and our teams and our organizations. Um, we need to understand how people are resilient, how they're adapting, and when people are doing that very well, re understand that and apply it to other areas in our health system and hospital where they may not be doing the same level of um, of performance. Um, this, this idea also assumes that the system itself is never really broken. It doesn't really need fixing because we are resilient, we are adaptable. Um, we just need to find better ways to manage that resilience across our organization. It also assumes that automation and standardization is helpful, but it can only take us so far. It's sort of necessary, but not sufficient. And we know that, right? We can make checklists to the end of time, but if people aren't there to sort of put them in their routine workflow, they, they aren't successful. Um, and so we, again, need to think about more so our performance and our team members and our organization and our team work um, in terms of resilience. So I think that's a really great um, concept to bring to safety. The other thing that many of you may have heard of are highly reliable organizations. Um, many healthcare institutions are trying to make uh, this transition. Um, these were originally derived, or the idea of the highly reliable organization was identified, I think, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, I think actually out of UCSF through um, a few psychologists. They embedded themselves for, you know, weeks or months on end with three industries. That was nuclear power, uh, commercial air traffic uh, controllers, as well as uh, aircraft carriers. And what they noticed from, embed from being embedded with these workers, understanding how they performed, interviewing them, is they really came up with two sort of overarching things, which I've summarized, but they, these organizations and the people that work in them have a constant sense of safety. They're always thinking about safety. And when that sort of spidey sense gets tickled and it says something's going wrong, they act on that sense uh, to make things safer or prevent an error from, uh, from occurring or a small error from getting big or catastrophic. Um, the other principles that have been sort of refined over time in terms of highly reliable organizations is these are places, as you can imagine, nuclear power, aircraft carriers, commercial aviation. They're in very high uh, performance, high risk environments, but they almost have a zero rate of catastrophic um, uh, accidents. So there are, of course, always examples, but generally speaking, you ne almost never hear about um, catastrophic um, accidents in these industries, particularly in, in sort of the, the modern era in the last 10, 15 years. Um, the other things that are really interesting about these organizations that, you know, we tend not to do so well in healthcare is they sort of operate in three different modes. They have sort of the standard operating procedure mode when um, tempo is low and there's plenty of time to get tasks done. Then there's sort of the medium level when things are a little higher. And then you get to the sort of 
you know, high pace and pressure environment. Um, and in this case, normally things are done according to procedure and policy, and there's a very hierarchical structure, you know, leaders, managers telling what the frontline workers what to do. But when you get into a high performance um, or even a situation where there's potentially an error or catastrophe evolving, um, you really get a flattening of the hierarchy and, and there's this deference to expertise. So the person who knows the most, whether that's, you know, a janitor on the floor or, um, you know, someone in a control room somewhere else, they're given the authority um, to make on the minute, on the fly decisions to uh, improve outcomes or prevent errors um, from propagating. Um, even despite when, you know, there may be someone of, of true authority, um, someone with a capital L who has a leadership title may be around, but they're given the little L leadership title in that moment to make things uh, possible. The other uh, uh, central features of highly reliable organizations is they have a culture of safety, which we'll touch on in a minute, which I think is really important. Um, they have a preoccupation with failure. Um, so errors are reported promptly. Um, I think, you know, they have many examples of where an individual will, will you know, have an error happen and they'll be partially responsible. They're the one who actually submits the uh, adverse event uh, or the safety report on themselves. Um, they have a commitment to resilience, which we've already talked about that concept. Um, they have a sens sensitivity to operations where they sense the environment and they know when small changes are being made and or if small errors start to develop, they're able to absorb them um, and modify in order to prevent them from getting worse. Um, and we already talked about the decentralized decision-making and the, and the deference to the frontline worker. So those are the kind of two large um, frameworks uh, that have emerged in the last um, 10, 20 years. Um, there's, of course, many other models about how accidents develop. Much, much of those, many of those are developed out of in, uh, other industries, not in the healthcare environment. These were sort of tailored specifically to be thinking about how is safety applied in modern healthcare, and particularly that safety two movement. So again, just to highlight um, for the second time what I think are the important takeaways, we have the safety one, which is sort of this linear causality work as imagined idea, and then safety two, where we're really looking towards that resilience, the performance variability, and that outcomes really emerge from changes in performance and we really want to be look, look, looking at work as done um, rather than how it's written out on a policy or sheet. Um, I should say uh, before we move on to safety culture is that, you know, the reality is you can't really exclude either one of these and focus on one of these frameworks or other because both are helpful, you know, for, for thinking about errors, accidents, and adverse events. Um, and sometimes it is appropriate to do a root cause analysis, particularly when a piece of equipment breaks. I mean, that is a, that is a machine. It has a very uh, predictable and reproducible way it's supposed to operate. Um, and that's a perfect opportunity to use the safety one framework and the investigation techniques that go into it. But many other times it's appropriate to start thinking about the safety two framework. Um, so I think neither one is, uh, is exclusive. We really should be you know, combining these two in our thinking. And that, that was my hope for today to be able to get you to understand both of those so you can use them moving forward. The other important aspect of, uh, of patient safety is um, really thinking about the culture that supports patient safety. So context and culture are always critical. So safety culture, I mean, really it's any, any culture in your organization is how it behaves when no one is watching. So, for safety, it's really about what are the values and attitudes towards safety? 
Um, how does the organization prioritize it? Um, what do the leaders talk about it? How is it written in policies and procedures? Um, you know, how do individuals show that behavior? Um, and the other important thing is that you have to um, feel safe to act safe. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But if you don't have psychological safety and safety for fear of retribution or uh, belittling when you report an adverse event, um, you're never going to make any headway. And so I think that's also a really important concept. The thing that we have to sort of fight against in order to have a safe culture, um, which we see all the time, is this idea of a culture of low expectations. And I'm sure you've all experienced this at some point, and it, and it, and it does run in all our organizations. But this idea is that, you know, if you see something, so if you're not sure it's wrong, you just assume it's right and you keep moving on. Where what we see in highly reliable organizations, when they're not sure, they don't assume it's right. They go and try to find more information until they know it's either right or wrong. And it's not like right or wrong about, um, you know, evidence-based medicine is, is this the right policy or am I supposed to be doing this instead of that in, ter in terms of, you know, putting, um, you know, this order in or that order in that way. It's really trying to figure out, um, you know, getting the right information so that you feel confident you're doing the right thing. Um, this is from uh, actually the NASA Safety Culture Handbook. I think it's a really nice diagram, which is why I included it. Um, this is, they obviously don't take care of patients, but they have a lot of issues with occupational safety. Um, again, a very high risk environment actually for only a select few of their employees, but many of them work in industrial type settings. And so they came up with this double helix idea, which I think really works well for us in medicine as, as well. Uh, we get that analogy. Um, you can see sort of permeating throughout um, and the backbone of the double helix is this idea of engagement or participation, sort of being involved in safety and safety culture. And then the, the, the bonds of the double helix, we see the other components of safety culture. Flexibility, which we've already talked about, being adaptive, that, that idea of resilience. Uh, learning, that's why we have adverse event reporting and investigations, is to learn and apply that learning back into our, organ our organizations and our units so that we can make improvements. Reporting, we've already talked about the value of reporting, uh, but that's uh, one step. And then the just culture, um, again, you have to feel safe to act safe. And so you can't really have safety culture with really, without all those components uh, being uh, embedded together. So just a little bit more about safety culture, because I think we run across it quite frequently, and many of you will have seen this um, or been a part of taking a safety culture survey. Um, at our institution, it's given every other year to all employees, including residents. Um, it's an extremely well-validated survey. Um, there's two instruments. This is an example of the AHRQ instrument that was developed. It gives you the domains that um, they feel are important in safety culture. Um, you can use it to track safety culture sentiment you know, throughout your organization and over time. It does have an ability to benchmark against your other peer organizations. Um, similar size, similar, you know, academic, community, et cetera. So it is a powerful learning tool. Um, the data by itself isn't helpful unless you sort of investigate further um, on some of the areas where you're either performing well or underperforming. What is also really fascinating about safety culture, and I'm sure all of you have experienced this at some point, um, is this idea that it's highly variable and highly local. So this is one of, from one of the large studies when they were coming up with safety culture survey. I think this was in Michigan where they applied it to uh, 
you know, dozens of hospitals across the state. And what they found, you know, this is the aggregate hospital score percent, you know, in terms of safety uh, rating that they gave themselves. You can see it's highly variable all across, all the way from 40, all the way up to 90. That holds true within a hospital um, when we're talking about different units within the hospital. And again, all of you, I'm sure, know this. Um, you go to the operating room, the safety culture and, and, and how safe practices are implemented and discussed is very different than it may be in the ICU and that may be very different than on the regular med surge floor or even in the outpatient clinic. Um, and and that, this has been reproduced many, many times and we see it in almost every organization. What also is really interesting is that even at the indi in, uh, individual response in terms of their role, we always see variability as well. Obviously, uh, the faculty tend to score um, or the attendings tend to score the highest. Uh, residents, not surprisingly, usually lower, uh, but who always outperforms everyone else are administrators. They always think that everything is better than it actually is. They consistently score the highest on safety culture uh, compared to almost every other role that is uh, recorded. So we've talked about the concepts um, and the frameworks for safety. We've talked about safety culture, which kind of supports the practice and, 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 and those frameworks. Um, and really we need to you know, talk about has all these ideas and concepts and frameworks and investigation tools, have they made any difference in, in terms of making patients safer, or I should say care safer and patients less likely to suffer harm? Um, that question is actually hard to answer and people have been trying to answer that probably since 1999 when the Institute of Medicine came out with their sort of landmark report to Air is Human. Um, but, but we have um, had some data with some reliability and reproducibility. We do know significant um, uh, benefit to a positive safety culture. Um, sometimes that's also called engagement or climate. But as that score goes up, um, we know that harm uh, goes down. Um, and, and that harm can be across many metrics, um, but that is a consistent finding. The other thing that we find is that as time goes on and institutions become safer, we see an increase in adverse event reporting. This is really reflective of that safety culture. Um, again, highly reliable organizations do this very frequently and consistently. Um, the interesting thing about safety is it's about one of the only areas where you can say you're looking for safety in the presence of its absence, right? Because if you have an adverse event, by definition, it means something happened and, and there was no safety there because either there was a near miss or someone got harmed. And so you're looking in that area to try and find safety. That's probably, again, necessary, but we haven't really done a good job of actually looking where safety is and saying, why is this unit or this team member um, or teams always consistently having lower harm um, than you know, this other team over here? And really looking at that team and counting the number of safe, safe practices that they have, because that's really where we should be looking, right? That's where safety exists. Um, so that's, again, in line with the Safety 2 movement and where some organizations are moving. Uh, but, but we do know that safety increases with increased adverse event reporting up to a point. And then in terms of overall harm decreasing over time, that has been shown consistently. There was actually a recent large study in JAMA Open Network uh, from last year that showed this um, in terms of adverse events leading to death in hospitalized patients in the U.S. I think it was over a 10 or 15 year period, a 20% approximately reduction. Um, so, so we are doing a better job in that um, obviously because there's more emphasis on it. So now to think about how you're gonna take this back 
um, some of these concepts back to your institutions. Um, so we're really thinking about translating some of these into practical applications. Um, and so I would just want to highlight that for those of you in residency, the ACGME has already made this a priority, has already required this of us all um, that are in um, training programs and supporting education for training programs. It's been in the milestones essentially since the milestones were conceived 15, 20 years ago. They're in the new harmonized 2.0 milestones, which just were released this year. Um, they're in the CLEAR program, which is the clinical learning environment, which is um, where they examine the sponsoring institution or your hospital as a whole. Um, significant um, efforts have been put into emphasizing that, particularly not just knowing these safety concepts that we've been talking about today, but also how you're going to report adverse events and then taking it a step further in terms of actually investigating adverse events and making uh, meaningful change based on the data you get from those investigations. So those are all requirements that are already present and being re-emphasized. So some examples we do here at Penn, um, just to give you some ideas, I'm happy to talk about these in more detail uh, via email later. We have educational materials to help you get these started if you're interested in bringing them you know, to your clerkships or your M&M um, conferences or your residency programs, we can help you with that. Um, one idea is the Good Catch Award. So um, these are resident-led submissions across our institution when they submit an adverse event that we think is um, valuable is the wrong word, but, but written in a very uh, blame-free way, um, getting back to that just culture, usually involves an event that could touch multiple specialties or multiple units or multiple types of patients. Um, often these reports have ideas for how the system can be improved in the adverse event report. And so what we like to do is really celebrate and reinforce the feedback that reporting is necessary. So they get a pin that looks like this, they get a certificate, their program director and chair gets an email about it, and then we usually take a picture of them and they get their face on the screensavers throughout the health system, which they both, uh, I think, um, enjoy and are terrified of at the same time. The other um, thing that we do over the last year is we've started a root cause analysis simulation program. So basically all our residency programs are required to participate. Um, and in this, we've sort of selected nine to 10 uh, real adverse events that led to an RCA, usually with serious harm or death. And we've modified them, de-identified them, condensed them into 90 minutes. And basically we get groups of residents um, together along with um, the other health professionals who would be relevant to that event. So say it happened in the ICU, it would be critical care nurses, respiratory therapists, critical care pharmacists, um, attendings, uh, people like that. They get together in small groups and they form sort of an investigation team. They go through the investigation. The goal is not necessarily to become an expert in analysis, but really to understand that um, all safety requires an interprofessional lens and really understand other people's perspectives on a safety event um, and start to think about, you know, these frameworks that we've already talked about today. The other thing we do are these quick safety event analysis um, where when an adverse event is reported, essentially we um, get our team members together usually one or two days later on the floor where it was submitted. Doesn't, doesn't matter who's around, usually we get people together for five, 10 minutes, review the result and start thinking about quick actions that we can do to make sure um, that we're immediately putting um, improvements uh, in place in the system, even if a more extensive investigation is gonna take place later. So these are just two examples from our ICU teams. The other thing that we've just started um, 
in the last uh, six months to a year is really in line with that resilience idea and that safety two movement that's called the One Safe Act. So this is really um, counting safe behaviors. Um, and so what we do is we go to the floors and we try to capture um, behaviors or activities that our staff do on a regular routine basis without even thinking about it, but they know that that behavior or activity um, improves safety uh, for the patients that they touch. And that doesn't, we have included all people that work in the hospital. So this is not necessarily nurses, doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners. We try to get everybody. One of the things, stories we always go back to is a food service employee um, noticed that when they were taking trays away, there was often medication left in the little pill cup because patients would wait for their food to come to take it with their food or um, a drink. And then they would end up eating their meal and forgetting to take their pills. So they would, this food service employee would always check the tray, take the pills off, encourage them to take it, um, and then notify the nurse to make sure that they followed up and that the pills were actually taken. Um, so this is a really powerful story. There's a lot of learning here. Um, you know, if we applied that to all our food service employees, medication compliance might go up, um, but a lot of opportunity here. And this is really making things uh, in a positive way as well. So as we end here, I'd really encourage you to think about, you know, reporting is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, participation is even more important. So when there is an adverse event um, and someone asks you to think about it, um, you know, maybe you take the initiative. Certainly for all your residency programs, there could be an opportunity to bring some of these events to discuss a little bit further and, and you know, conferences that already exist like M&M, which are traditionally not really um, based on some of these safety principles or investigation techniques, but, but these can easily be applied. At the end, I have a reference called the um, Learning from Defects Tool out of the Armstrong Institute at Hopkins. It's a very reproducible, um, very easy to follow uh, tool that can help you investigate um, an, an adverse event um, and generate learnings from it. Um, again, very much in the Safety One framework, uh, but it's very helpful and very easy to use, very low lift to get it started. So I think we also have to start thinking about how can we transition from the absence of harm. So People always talk about adverse event reporting and safety as it kind of goes into a black hole and you're not really sure what happens after you submit an adverse event report. Do things get better? Um, they often do, and there is usually someone following up on that. But we also need to think about, you know, can we look in places where there is safety and try to learn from that as well and reproduce that? Um, and that's where we sort of have started our One Safe Act idea. So again, just to round out today, um, again, I told you we would hit this concept many times today, the safety one and safety two framework, both are applicable, both are important. Um, one is very linear um, in terms of their thinking. The other one is very um, variable in terms of the performance. Um, and so I hope um, I've sort of hit that home today um, in terms of those two concepts. The last thing I wanna touch on in sort of a more mentorship role is um, particularly at Penn, and I've heard um, as well through, throughout um, the country as we see more and more uh, urology residents as well as all the surgical subspecialties interested in safety and quality as a career and gaining additional knowledge in this space. So I would say that um, having attended some of the uh, larger national meetings on this, um, uh, much of this work and, and, and is done at in the internal medicine specialties. And so there's really an opportunity for surgical subspecialists uh, to get involved and really become experts in our area. Um, I would say that most of these people nowadays entering um, either this as their career path or part of their career path have additional training. 
These are just some of the examples we have here at Penn. Um, Encore is actually one of our um, certificate um, uh, participants now. Um, and so these are uh, great opportunities at Penn, but many other institutions have these as well. Um, and I think if you're going to plan for this to be part of your career as you leave residency in the fellowship or, fel or residency in the practice, um, that you might want to consider one of these to put you on par with many of the other um, medical specialists who are doing this work for their institutions. I would also encourage you to reach out to people in your institution who are doing this work to get some practical experience to really build your credentials. Um, but I think it's important. The other thing I would say is that if you don't ask for this to be part of your career, it probably won't because it's not something that's often thought of, um, particularly if you're entering academics. Um, so get the advanced training and say that you want it to be part of your career. Um, so some additional readings or um, other content you could be interested in. Um, this is a video that um, we developed the content for. So Chris Tessier out of Oregon Health Sciences, who's another urologist interested in safety. Um, and Andrew Harris, also another urologist interested in safety out of University of Kentucky. So we put together a script and worked with Osmosis, which is a educational online um, video content producer uh, to make this um, adverse event investigation video. Um, it's really interactive, gives you some time for reflection to think about how you would do the investigation. You can see there it's about eight minutes. Um, it was actually produced by the Society of Academic, well, paid for by the Society of Academic Urologists through a grant, which is the Professional Society for Urology Program Directors. Um, so this is the link here to the video. Um, if you're interested, you can watch it. Um, and then these are some of the readings. The references um, for most of the slides I have in the notes section, which I believe will be posted after today's lecture. Um, but these are some of the um, ad uh, additional readings if you're really interested in safety. Some of them are white papers, some of them are review papers. Um, the link there for the, uh, for the Hopkins is that uh, learning from defects tool, which can help you with uh, sort of modified root cause analysis that you could do at M&M. Um, I put the, the NASA Safety Culture Handbook there, which has some of those graphics and some additional materials, um, some stuff about highly reliable organizations. Um, so that's kind of um, there just if you need it. And if you're interested, um, happy to take any questions. I think we're going to do some Q&A now, but I'm also available uh, via email. And then, of course, would love for you guys to rate today's lecture and um, to the, also the UCSF um, program as a whole. So thank you for listening. Um, again, thank you to UCSF for organizing this. Um, everyone who's listened and participated, um, we should all be fortunate that we have this opportunity um, to sort of learn from multiple different people uh, over this last six weeks. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Justin. Um, I have a few questions for you. The first oh, man, what do we got? <laughs> The huddles you have with all the team members after an adverse event on the floor or ICU seem great, but are there surgical trainees or uro urology trainees able to actually attend those? Uh, time is usually limited um, between the ORs. So, good question. That, so timing is always difficult and it varies depending on what floor and what unit and who's, uh, what sort of event manager we call them or safety specialist is, is doing it. So. For our surgical people, when they rotate through the ICU, that's a great opportunity because they do one about a week or every other week. 
Um, the other opportunities that we've had for surgical house staff, particularly urology, is actually we try to do them before the operating room. There's usually that time between patient check-in and when the patient actually gets in the room where we do them down in the perioperative space right outside the operating room. Um, again, these are like 10, 15 minutes. So we're usually the residents who are assigned um, to the operating room that day have that time available. Um, so we've kind of squeezed it in there. Um, but it, but it, it, it is a challenge and it is variable. But right before the operating room starts seems to be a time that works best for a lot of people in the surgical arena. Another one is regarding the bar graph you showed uh, regarding the perception of safety amongst different providers. Said that attending yeah. surgeons perceive high levels of safety assuming they operate in the same system that the other staff operate in. Is your takeaway that surgeons are just really out of touch with reality or is it a matter, matter of seniority? No, I mean, this is just, uh, this just happens to be, uh, the, this is like a stylized graph from one of their, um, uh, original research articles, and it, it just so happens that they were studying, I think, um, uh, the perioperative environment, or I think actually might have been the surgical ICU. Uh, but, but no, it's usually uh, people who are in a faculty or attending role tend to score higher um, than, you know, certainly residents. Um, although nurses tend to score pretty high as well. So this, this is just a representation that there's variability between the roles. I wouldn't put too much stock into these percentages uh, for these per particular roles because this is just kind of a, a stylized graph of their data. And another question is, how can we encourage a culture of safety when mistakes are often dealt with in, uh, often dealt with punitive consequences in medicine? Yeah, so that's a good question. That, that's something that everyone's been working on for a long time. Um, and I think it really goes back to what we've tried to do is, you know, try to make the invisible visible. Um, so there are, of course, people who it's, it, it has a negative connotation everywhere and, and it's a slow process. Uh, but I think really understanding and connecting with the people who do the investigation, um, you know, when you submit an event, usually there, there's someone on the back end who is investigating it. I, I would encourage you to reach out to them and understand what they're doing for their investigation process uh, because you'd be surprised how much work goes into it. And the more you learn about it and the more that there's this two-way communication, um, those ideas of retribution seem to slowly fade away. It's not going to go away overnight, but the more that you, um, you know, reach out to the people who are doing it, um, the less um, onerous that seems. Uh, but agree that it's not something that gets fixed overnight. I mean, we've been working on this sort of idea for the last three years, and we've only recently started to make some significant headway. So um, it does take effort. And uh, one more is checklists and algorithms help prevent unnecessary variations and reduce error in healthcare. But some people believe cookie cutter patient care can reduce the essence of medicine. What are your thoughts on this? Um, so I, I think at some point, I can't remember which slide, you know, automation and standardization, and that includes checklists and, checklists and policies are helpful, right? Because it tells people, um, and that's more in line with quality about nation and same for the checklist. Um, it's really trying to force you in that mindset. 
Um, but the checklist is only a tool and the tool only works if your team members buy into it and there's a culture that supports it. So if you had a really positive safety culture with team members who were, you know, relied on each other and had really strong uh, engagement, you probably wouldn't need the checklist at all. Um, and so I think that they're, they're helpful in getting the process started. But once you sort of everyone does the checklist, you know that when you go to the operating room, the checklist is done, but how much engagement do you actually see during the checklist? It's probably very minimal. Instead, what you'd like to see is the team members really working together and saying, okay, here's the case today. You know, here's what we're doing. You know, I'd really like this out of you today. This is the equipment we need. Do you have any concerns? I have this concern. I think it's going to take me about this long. These are the people I need to help me. Um, you know, those, that teamwork, I think, is more important. So it doesn't become really cookie cutter. Um, it really probably actually becomes more of that adaptive and resilient idea where people are allowed to bend the policies a little bit uh, because we know that there's such resilience in the teams and the people that we, you know, have in our organization. And uh, what are your thoughts on M&M? How does Penurology run their sessions? And have you modified this over the years to adapt some of the newer safety concepts? So we have uh, to some degree. So we converted all our M&Ms to be actually put into our adverse event reporting system, which was um, not a big lift, but certainly of concern. Um, because there tends to be, at least for surgeons, I don't really want anyone outside of, you know, my surgical area knowing um, our complications. Um, and by putting it in the adverse event reporting system, that opened it up to additional eyes, particularly to our safety experts who would see them. Um, I do think that has opened up, um, you know, from one of the previous questions, I said opened up that two-way communication. Um, I think um, that really helps. We've started to incorporate um, our nursing leads for some of our inpatient units, um, our, some of our safety support staff on the hospital, um, you know, is in communication with me about some of the events. Um, and I think that has really been powerful. Um, we were, were just sort of on the cusp of trying to start um, entering some of those positive safety events that happen uh, when things really go well in the operating room to learn from that and discuss that. Um, that kind of got a bit derailed over the last few months with the pandemic as we were going to start that in the new year. Um, so some of these concepts we are trying to apply. M&M um, is a hard space to do a full switch over because people still like discussing a lot of the clinical care that goes on. And that's not always necessarily because someone has a complication doesn't mean something went wrong. There are, you know, there is a certain rate of complications and that doesn't mean that there was an error made. So I think we always have to be a little careful about M&M uh, bleeding into safety and adverse event. But I bet you that there are adverse events that happen to your urology patients um, that probably get closed or investigated by people on the inpatient side or your safety team members that happen external to your M&M. The M&M is a conference that's usually already allocated to discuss sort of this kind of behavior or this type of uh, material is to maybe invite those people in and at the beginning of your M&M discuss some of those adverse events and how they investigated them. And that might be, a, and then you may transition for the, you know, second half of the hour or whatever to doing your regular M&M and discussing complications and things like that. That's what we've tried to do when necessary. And I, I suspect that's probably the right mix, at least for now. Well, thank you, Justin. I think that's all we have.
All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Encore. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, happy to take some email questions as well um, later on. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.